0: Here we go, rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition, as we do every week, the long form interview with all sorts of folks who have touched the NBA, Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast, so is Adam Stenko out West is Danny Shays, seven teams in 18 years after being the 13th overall pick in 1981 by the Utah Jazz out of Syracuse, the son of Hall of Famer Dolph Shays, also an author, fast broke, learned the real reason athletes go broke, so... You don't have to, Danny. We're going to take this in all sorts of directions, but we're going to start with the handful of games you played for the Lakers when Magic Johnson was the head coach. Give me a story, not the Vlade Pager story, but a story that sums up that experience.
1: So I get traded in a salary cap deal. You know, a lot of players have, uh, you know, have trade stories, right? I got traded for a you know for for the water cooler i got traded for an assistant coach i got traded for a draft pick i got traded for a salary slot back then players fit into slots so you could you know kind of match salaries so i got traded for a slot uh i'm there i'm there less than two weeks three head coaches we guys got there during the randy fund era uh randy there's about 25 games to go in the season randy gets canned bill Burtka, the longtime assistant takes over uh, because they were hiring Magic, and they needed a little fill. So three head coaches in two weeks. Uh, I think that's where I got the, uh, the reputation as a coach killer. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure. Uh, so then Magic comes in, and the team goes from moribund, is that the right word, to, like, lit on fire. So the first practice we're having, you know, first game day, we got our shoot around. Uh, we're doing a walkthrough. Magic is an intense coach. I, you know, I'm an old-school guy. Magic is at the heart is an old school guy, of course, with a modern twist. But as far as, you know, playing with intensity and playing to win and anything to win, Magic was, was at his core old school. So we're doing our final walkthrough. Really important to win his first game. And right in the middle of the little team meeting, John Black, the PR guy, walks in and says, all right, Magic, we got to run some B-roll. we got the press over here. They're set up. We gotta, and Magic's looking at him like, what the F are you talking about, dude? I'm in a meeting and and john's there trying to set up the b-roll shot for that camera guy of magic walking into the arena and he just literally barges right into the to the conversation magic goes off on him and and you know so you know as hollywood as magic can be i mean he was 100 percent focused on winning his first game
2: if he had if he had continued down the path of being a head coach for quite some time what what would we have seen as as magic the coach
1: uh, I think you would have seen, frankly, more in the Pat Riley mode than anything else. Uh, like I said, Magic was all about, you know, 100% intensity. You know, uh, winning time. You know, he coined that phrase about winning time. And the, I think the thing that really set him off, if I could point to a, an incident, it's not the Vladdy story, uh, which is which is kind of famous. But one day we're at practice, and Magic is just chewing us out. Uh, because, you know, guys aren't aren't playing hard. They're talking about their cars and their girls and their this and their that. And we had some, you know, some old guys It was, you know, if you remember the team, it was Buddha, uh, James Edwards, me, um, uh, Kurt Rambison, and, and uh, James Worthy were still leftovers. But then we had the young guys. We had Nick Van Exel. We had Anthony Peeler, George Lynch from Carolina, uh, Eldon Campbell. So there's this real kind of disconnect between the old school guys and the young school guys. So, you know, guys would show up late, you know, guys just didn't have the right attitude. So Magic's, you know, trying to inspire him, And then as soon as he stops, you know, one guy looks at the other and says, yes, we had our Porsche. We're going down the, uh, uh, you know, the 101. And they're just, and Magic's just shaking his head going, really? I mean, didn't, the echo didn't die, but before they were going after talking about their Porsche, you know, racing down the, the highway. So those guys would have been gone, would have totally cleaned house, started over with effort guys. And uh Uh, you know, would have transformed the whole team. So I was a huge Magic fan. I thought he was a great coach. Uh, But again, I come from that kind of old school uh, mentality. You know, we were there to get the job done, not to, uh, you know, talk about, uh, you know, who was doing who after the game. What was it like for
0: Magic to lose those final 10 games in a row?
1: Well, the worst was we were in Phoenix. We were right on the cusp. When he came in, I want to say we were maybe four games out of the eighth spot. And uh, we are, you know, a little over 50-50. We were, you know, making some turnarounds. We played a game at Phoenix, which is a huge game for us. And uh, the the team just quit. I mean, it was gory. I mean, you know, we ended up getting blown out. It was such a laugher that Dan Marley started shooting free throws with his left hand in the second half. Uh, he benched everybody. He's played all the old guys who would try hard. And that's when, uh, you, know, the, you know, the next morning, 7 a.m. practice, if you're late, you're cut. Uh, Jerry West shows up, Magic shows up, and they were they were just uh, you know uh, just ripping guys up and down. It was depending on which side of the argument you were on, it was either one of the best rip jobs or the worst rip jobs. If you were getting ripped, it was a bad one. And uh, but that's what really set him off was that you know guys just quit, and he had no patience for that. Uh, you know, you fought till the end. If you're, you know, if guys were, were, were laughing at you, making fun, you, you put them on their ass. You know, it was, uh, it was like that. But, but it was, well, you know, he just, like I said, he had no patience for the young guys who, uh, you know, who were just, just happy being there, going out to parties.
2: I want to go back a little bit with you and what could have been potentially magic. 1979 NCAA tournament. You're playing with Syracuse and you guys lose to Penn in the second round. Yeah. who eventually famously lost to, to Michigan State in the Final Four later. What do you think your chances would have been against Michigan State with that Syracuse team that you had at that time? And, and what was that experience like to be in the 1979 uh, NCAA tournament?
1: Yeah, it was one of the big stub toes in history. I mean, we had a really good team at that point. We had Louis and Bowie as our as our foundation. Roosevelt Bowie and Lewis Orr. You know, both uh, Louis, uh, Louis, uh, Roosevelt was an All American center. Lewis, of course, uh, NBA player and now uh, you know uh, coach uh, on the college level. And it was it was such a shame. I mean, we just really just kind of punted. We actually played Magic the year before uh, his freshman year. He played at Syracuse in the Carrier Classic, the Christmas tournament. Uh, Marty Burns, uh, who played uh, for a cup of coffee with Phoenix, was on that team, uh, and he came in and and uh, we actually actually beat them. Uh, Magic ended up being MVP of the tournament, uh, but we actually beat him the year before, so it would have been a great game. Man, you know, I love that Michigan State team with Greg Kelser and and of course Magic and uh, you know I actually played uh, if you if you want to kind of play six degrees of separation uh, in the final against. Uh, uh, Indiana State that year uh there was a guard for Indiana State Carl Nix uh who played against uh Michigan State in that final, and Carl was my guard with the jazz the next year, my rookie year uh in eighty one so I guess it was I guess that was two years later uh but I played with Carl again, who played on that Indiana state team with Larry Bird that lost to to magic that championship, so it was uh, you know i've i was uh, you you know, been a big magic fan uh you know as a both a competitor. Uh, and, uh, you know, just a guy who appreciates basketball from, you know, like I said, from his freshman year.
0: What kind of Larry Bird, Indiana State stories did you hear?
1: Well, I mean, Carl Nix was a bulldog of a player. I mean, he was 6'3", shredded, incredible athlete, lefty, you know, played super hard. And and that's what uh, what made that team uh, really was their identity, just the effort they put through the mental toughness they had, the physical toughness coming from a small conference uh, you know but Larry Bird was such a leader of that team and uh, and he brought that personality you know that farm boy kind of mentality uh, to the uh, to the team and uh, so we, you know, we we obviously played Larry uh, many times, uh, you know, mostly just the twice a year since I was mostly in the West for his career but uh, Uh, Larry was a was a funny dude. One time, Freddie, when I'm with Milwaukee, uh, Freddie Roberts and I were out shooting before the game, and Freddie was a teammate of Bird's a few years earlier, and they were buddies. So Larry comes out and sees us shooting, and he walks over. You know, we're playing like a game of horse. He goes, "What are you guys playing, Mormon?" Uh, You know, because Freddie was a famous Mormon, and I and I had to look over and said, "Well, actually, uh, I'm playing Jew. I'm the better shooter, so I only get three letters." So. Uh, and uh, you know we had a big laugh over that, but uh, uh, Larry, you know, was, was quiet in public, but but underneath it, he was uh, he was a funny dude.
0: What what was the the most upfront trash talk you heard from Larry Bird on the court?
1: You know, it's funny. We I would say one of the best regular season wins I ever had was in the Boston Garden when I was with Denver. Uh, we ended up playing super high high tempo game. Uh, we ended up, you know, and both teams played great. It wasn't one of those somebody was flat. We had a great offensive game. The game was in the 130s. We ended up, uh, you know, winning a five-point game. And, uh, you know, it was it was just great to not only play in that environment but shut up the crowd. Larry was funny. He was, you know, against us, it, you know, he wasn't such a big trash talker because, you know, we weren't one of the big rivals. Uh, you know, so it wasn't playing against the bad boys or wasn't playing against Jordan. And, uh, you know, for us it was just a great game. We had a lot of uh, – uh, you know, I ended up, uh, Danny angels on that team who I was teammates with later. Uh, you know, I think it was early enough for Rick Roby might've still been one of the centers, the famous Kentucky, uh, the center from there. So there, I mean, it was, a, uh, it was a, it was a great game. Uh, you know, the, obviously the chief, uh, Robert Parrish, one of the all-time greats. So, uh, you know, it was just always fun to play in the garden.
2: Speaking of, uh, legends battling Charles Barkley, especially your time in, in Milwaukee, um, what, what's it like against him on the court? And what is what is he saying over the course of a game?
1: Well, the funny part is, you know, the way the, the game had evolved over the years, right? If you remember when I first came in the league in the early 80s, uh, the joke was, you know, dinosaurs ruled the earth. Every team had a big, giant center, played inside out. Um, and the four position was a banger position, right? It was the Kurt Rambuses, the Mark Landsbergers, the Maurice Lucas, the, you know, the enforcer Kind of position. Then the position transformed into a scoring position. You had Karl Malone. You had, as you mentioned, Barkley. uh, You had, you know, kind of this different level of of strong power forwards. And and the thing with Barkley is he's what you what you see is what you get. I ended up playing with him in Phoenix uh, in the in the kind of the mid 90s, and uh, you know we got to become buddies and hanging out, and and uh, you know never go to dinner with him because you'll barely eat. I mean, everybody, people come over and, like, they think they can, he's just an open guy. They just think they can come over and talk to him, talk to him nonstop. They've all got a story. Uh, but Charles is what you see is what you get. Uh, we're in Houston one time. The hotel we stayed in was off the big mall, the Galleria. And uh, so I tried to sneak in. I took the elevator up to four and went across that little bridge so I wouldn't have to run into any of the fans. And here comes Charles with 100 people following him. Literally 100 people watched (laughs) him shop in the mall. And he's gabbing with them all. And he's, you know, just, you know, uh, do anything for kids, you you know, signing autographs, you know, gabbing. So social, such a you know good guy to be around like the fans in that way uh you know if you were a professional autograph guy chasing him he'd he'd cuss you out and wouldn't talk to you, but <laughs> you know kids with a scrap of paper he'd spend all day and uh, uh you know, just uh, uh you know, I actually did kind of get into it uh, with him once uh we were we were playing a game, and uh, this is after when I was in miami, and uh uh. You know he was, you know he kind of had this thing with with former teammates. You know he liked to kind of push himself around, so we got into a little push and shove fight, but nothing, uh, nothing too serious. On the court. Uh, On the court, yeah, yeah. Actually, the the, you know the funny one was Charles is my my favorite Charles Barkley story is uh, towards the end of his career he played. We there was a Sunday game of the week and he stunk it up. Uh, You know, just one of those games, he just didn't have it. And they interviewed him after. He's like, well, you know, I just can't go to Vegas all night drinking and fly back in for the game like I used to. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that's how he was. Just, uh, you know, what you see is what you get. You know, basketball is a family business for
0: Danny Shays. RockAuto.com, a family business. Serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to RockAuto.com and you can shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They've got everything you could possibly need for your car. For a car for me at five foot nine, or a car for Danny at six foot eleven. The catalog's unique. It's so easy to navigate. You can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brands, the specifications, and the prices that you prefer. And those prices are always reliably low for everybody, not just professionals. The do-it-yourselfers also go to RockAuto.com right now. You can see all the parts available for your car or truck. Here's important. Right locked on L O C K E D space on locked on in the how did you hear about us box so that they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably, low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Rockauto.com. So when you guys were teammates in ninety-five in Phoenix, and I do I do want to ask about the Mario Ellie shot. I don't think we've ever talked about it in all of our conversations, but yeah, Bar- but Barkley had the retirement meeting in the locker room afterwards, but saying that he was going to retire. What, what was that conversation like with Barkley and everybody else? Uh,
1: Well, nobody took him seriously. Um, There was a lot of frustration at that point. Uh, So we're playing Houston in 95 in the playoffs. We actually uh, had, had head and shoulders, the best team in the league Mm -hmm. that year. Uh, Danny Manning tore his ACL uh, about the midway point of the season. And we went from gelling to being just like one of the top five teams. You know, like but we were head and shoulders with Danny ahead. I mean, we had a super well-balanced team. KJ and Marley, Danny Ainge at the guards. You know, you had Barkley, AC Green, um, you know, at the forwards. You had Wayman Tisdale in the post. Uh, Danny Manning, me, Way, and uh, Joe Klein. Uh, you know, at the at the center position, and we just had you know, had great balance, played great. Uh, and and really unselfish team. And then when Danny got hurt, it was just kind of that extra cog that you know put us into the mix. So we're up three-one against Houston with the home home court. So game five, we lose at the buzzer. Uh, game six, we go down and lose a you know a decisive loss. I mean they beat us by I don't know fifteen maybe. Uh, and then we come home for for uh, game seven at home, and we're ahead with a minute to go. Uh, we you know put on a press. They ended up uh, kind of kicked the ball around and broke the press almost by accident, hit Mario Ellie in the corner for uh for a three pointer dagger to win it. I've got a in the low post so I'm kind of stunting, trying to decide, you know, do I leave Akeem? You know, we're we're recovering back, so I kinda of studied, went out to close out and he ended up making the shot and then of course the famous blowing the kisses the what he called the kiss of death shot. Mm-hmm. And uh you know, it was one of those great moments. Unfortunately I was on the you know, the, the back end of it, but it was one of those great moments and uh, you know, but just like I said a ton of frustration because we you know we had the series uh you know in hand and slipped away with two like i said two buzzer beaters uh to lose it at home uh and then of course, Houston went on to uh if you remember Akeem torched David Robinson in the next round and then swept Orlando in the finals, so that uh, uh you know that was that year, and uh again a year, a year that we felt that, that that we had it and so it was uh, you know, a lot of frustration at that point but uh, you know, again, it's just one of those things. Where you you know, you say things at that you know in that moment where you you know you think about them later and obviously change your mind. Did you do the right thing? Did you make the right call on that play? Yes. Yeah, you know, just had to. You know, you're, you, do I give up a three in the corner or a keem underneath? Uh, you know, so I kind of, like I said, stunted, waited till you know defense could come back and, and fill the play, and then you know ran out to the corner, but uh, just made a good shot
2: playing against the keem. You know, you talked about it. Everyone remembers that series against against David Robinson. And I think in a weird way, it's changed how people have viewed both of those players historically, like after, after that series. What was the challenge as a post player in, in guarding Akeem? What made him so difficult as a cover?
1: What's ironic is that I actually played him probably as well as anyone. Uh, because he had so many tricks. He had great moves. Of course, he had the dream shake on the baseline. Uh, he had great up and unders. He could step out to you know, 18 feet, so you had to guard him, and then he was quick to the basket. Uh, he was great at changing ends. Uh, you know, a real kind of prototype, um, uh, you know, I won't say a stretch five because he didn't have three-point range. Of course, the three-point line wasn't what it was then as it is now. But what made him so tough, like I said, number one, he got the ball every time. So, you had to guard him all the time. You know, jet quick, had that unstoppable baseline shot. Uh, but what made me a good matchup against him is because I was, uh, I never went for his fakes. You know, people used to joke that I was so slow by the time he faked and made his move, I didn't go for the first fake and I was there to catch the second move. Um, but uh, it was really my, you know, I wasn't a, uh, you know, I'm not blocking his shots, right? So, my, I was a position defender, so I was pretty effective against the superstar players. You know, Patrick Ewing, Shaq, you know, those guys, because I bodied them all the time. I met them early, you know, so I was bodied them from the top of the key down. I didn't let them get, you know, rooted into the post where you had to try and get them out. And uh, so I played you know, more of a cerebral game. And I actually, like I said, I, I prided myself on giving Akeem fits because uh, I was, you know, I, I go, look, it's hard for him to jump with me standing on his feet the whole game. <laughs> and you know you laugh, but I literally stood on his feet the whole game. I mean, I was, you know, leaning on him, you know, breathing on him, standing on him, bumping him, uh, you know, from the time he essentially crossed the top of the key. And uh, uh, and he preferred guys who you know like were the shot blocker types. Uh, that's why he'd torch a guy like David Robinson, who didn't play physical, uh, went for the, the the shot block. But Akeem had the fadeaway, the the up and unders, as you know, you know all those kind of cutesy moves that were, were perfect against David Robinson but didn't do a thing against me because I never went for the fakes. And um, uh, so that's why, in, you know, in that specific matchup, I actually probably played him better than David did. And, uh, you know, David was really exposed in that series, if you remember. And I think it did more to elevate Akeem than to denigrate David Robinson. I mean, David was an amazing player, but I just think it just raised Akeem to another player, uh, to, to another level. Who did keep you up at night? Well, um, I would say, you know, the guys who were toughest were when I ended up getting like kind of these in-between matchups, like Tom Chambers was a tough guy for me to guard because he, you know, would stretch out to the three-point line and was so good with the handle of with the ball. Um, you know, when, to, what I actually kind of, you know, I wouldn't say ended my career, but kind of gave me trouble toward the end is when, team, when, the, when the inside-out offense kind of disappeared. You know, when mm-hmm. I first came in the league, every team had a big center. Uh, you know, there were you know I did a count once. I think there were ten twenty thousand 20,000-point centers at the same time when I came in. And then there was that little overlap from, like, the Jack Sigma era, Dan Issel, um, you know, Artist Gilmore, Bob Lanier, those guys, Kareem, uh, Moses. Uh, you know, all those guys were kind of in their prime when I came in. I played against Kareem for eight years. And then you had the transition to Akeem and, and David Robinson and Patrick Ewing and Rick Smiths and, like, that whole group came in. Uh, and then when that first group kind of went out, they, uh, uh, you know, like the Bill Waltons and uh, you know, like you sort of the Kareems, all you know, those guys, uh, you know, they when they kind of left, they weren't really replaced. They The league went smaller, and then it was tougher for me because they're like there weren't good matchups. And so I ended up matching up against fours, guys like, you know, Tom Chambers or, you know, guys who run ran the floor and shot threes. And, you know, it was, it was a tougher matchup. You know, when I first came in, there were like guys who were backup centers were good. You know, even guys like Mike Jaminski and Tree Rollins and Swen Nader. and uh, you know these guys were all you know really good players. They just again were matching up against the you know Kareems and Artis Gilmore's and Moses Malone's of the world. And uh, but uh Tree Rollins was every bit as good as Dikembe Mutombo. You know, and Dikembe was a Hall of Famer, and Tree was a you know you know was a 12th best center in the league maybe or 15th or whatever. You know, you had um You know, Chocolate Thunder was still playing, right? Daryl Dawkins uh, was the guy in the league, right? So every team had guys. Uh, You had Bill Cartwright, you had Marvin Webster, you had, uh, you know, almost on like on and on and on. Uh, George Johnson led the league in block shots for Utah. Mark Eaton uh, with the Jazz, Alvin Adams in Phoenix. Uh, I'm trying to think like who didn't have a you know an All Star level center back then. That was the position when I came in, and now it's like can you name three? Right? I mean it's. uh, you know, it's is, really is transformed. A, the three point line has really, really changed the entire style of play.
0: That's for sure. Is there one from that list who, amongst NBA players gets his due, but from the outside doesn't?
1: Uh, are you from my era? Yeah. That list. Um, you know, it really interesting. You know, you look like a guy like, uh, like Jack Sigma, who, who as a young player, uh, you know, led Seattle to the championship in 79 was a, a different style of player face up had that like those the step back ball above his head moves really kind of a unique style of play that that uh you know kind of popularized you know the face up center which was a style i played a lot uh you know more kind of middle end of my career you know high post passer shooter pick and pop guy um you know th- you know we kind of stretched the floor again the three-point line wasn't a thing so you know if i shot a three i'm getting yanked right it wasn't a you know, wasn't thought about as a as an offensive weapon for a center. But you know, a guy like Jack Sigma really uh you know made an impact. Um uh you know obviously you know about Moses and Kareem guys leading the league, but a Robert Parrish who was such a uh you know integral part of Boston's championships. Um uh you know Bob Lanier was still in the league. You know, that big power lefty hook guy, uh, you know, guys who, you know, you know played before guys you know, guys played in small markets, Dan Issel, Hall of Fame player uh, ABA guy, because uh, you know, remember the merger was only a few years old when I came in the league, right? So you still had a bunch of, of ABA guys still playing, you know, George right. Gervin and Artis Gilmore and, of course, Moses. And, uh, you know, a lot of those guys were were, were you know, the Jones brothers, you know, Caldwell Jones. And, um, you know, those were a lot of those still ABA guys were still in the league.
0: There's enough to worry about these days. There's more than enough to worry about every single moment of the day. So take dinner out of that and use the DoorDash app. No need to stress. You can continue to support restaurants in your community safely. And there are thousands of restaurants open for delivery on DoorDash that need your patronage now more than ever. Marissa and I were using it the other night for Chinese food locally here in New York City. It's the app that brings you the food that you want right now. And it doesn't matter if one person wants one thing and someone else wants another. It all works together. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off and zero delivery fees on their first order of or $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the code LOCKEDONNBA, L-O-C-K-E-D, On NBA, $5 off, no delivery fees on your first order. Download the DoorDash app in the App Store, enter the code NBA. Locked on NBA five dollars off your first order with
2: DoorDash. So you mentioned Kareem. The headline when you guys got into the fight was that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar delivered a flying headlock to Danny Shade. <laughs> what happened?
1: So I kind of have to give you a little bit, you know, from the you know from the perspective because at the time I didn't know what happened. Uh, Magic and I talked about this years later, and it turned out that I elbowed magic in the head going for a rebound. Right? And he said it was a real thrown elbow, which I would not a throw elbow guy. Didn't dispute it. I mean, uh, you know, cuz clearly, you know, magic and uh, you know, magic turned and, you know, gave me this this real like I'm going to fight you look. Uh, that I didn't know what was behind it. So, but I so I'm you know, totally fine with that I elbowed him in the head. Uh, you know, but like I said, I was not an intentional elbow guy. So, uh, if it happened, it happened. No, you know, and then so Kareem, I guess, ran in to protect Magic and uh, came up from behind. But for a guy who trained with Bruce Lee, it was a pretty unsophisticated move. I mean, uh, you know, so so the, the way it played out is I, I you know, the next day I'm on a radio talk show and some guys asked me about it, and I didn't want to make it into this big thing. You know, actually, he should have got suspended. In today's world, he would have been suspended the rest of the series. He would have been, uh, you know, he, he was thrown out of the game, but no suspension and, uh, you know, would have really changed the the playoffs. But, you know, that in that era, you, know, you didn't get thrown out for stuff like that. So, so uh, you know, so it's Magic and me and, and Kareem kind of in the thing. And so, uh, you know, I was asked about it, and like I said, I'm, I'm trying to make light of it. So I said, well, look, Magic runs up to me, and he says, big party at my house after the game, but whatever you do, don't tell Kareem. <laughs> well, Kareem overhears it, and, you know, and Magic never invites him to his party, so he goes bonkers, right? And he... You know, so we just had this big laugh. I didn't think anything of it. Well, it turned out that Sports Illustrated wrote the entire article on the series about that, mm-hmm. and uh, you know about Magic never inviting Kareem to his parties. And I guess I don't know. I hit a chord by accident, uh, but it like turned into the thing, and uh, you know, which was which was pretty comical. But uh, but that was like kind of my introduction to the big time because you know I'm I'm a young player. I'm in the league. I don't know two three years. I'm in the. we were playing in the forum. It's the playoffs. It's you know. It's it's full forum, right? All the celebrities and the, you know, and and, and Jack Nicholson and we're you know we're we're gabbing. And now, the thing happens. Kareem gets thrown out of the game. Uh, so the, the to, to kind of give you a little bit of the background. We lose game one by 20, in, in LA. Game two, Doug your Doug Mo, our coach, comes out and says we're going to win game two. not not not, not a question. And they're like, yeah, yeah, ha, 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 sure, you're going to get swept. So game two, this is game two. So this thing happens, Kareem gets thrown out, we blow him out at the end of the day. Well, I'm going to the free throw line, I'm shooting free throws and the technical, and all of a sudden I look up, 10 deep, the fans come out of the, out of the stands, 10 deep, circling the court, giving me the bird, cussing me out, screaming at me. I'm like, dude, I'm big time. I got the entire <laughs> forum crowd cussing me out. I This like, this is the first time I knew I really hit the big time in the NBA. Because yeah, I played in Utah and Denver. We're not media markets. But here I am in the forum. I got Jack Nicholson flipping me off. I'm like, dude, I am big time. <laughs> it, was, it was huge.
2: Uh,
1: that's great. Did you ever
0: patch it up with? kareem or ever even speak
1: about it uh magic and i laughed about it kareem and i have never talked about it he was uh you know the the, the funny part is uh you know in 1970 my dad was the coach of the then buffalo braves he was mm-hmm. the expansion coach when they came in the league it was the year cleveland portland and buffalo all came in the league portland uh you know and uh, Cleveland, of course, is what they are. Uh, Buffalo is now the Clippers. They moved to San Diego, became the San Diego Clippers, and now LA. And um, but I ended up being a ball boy when when that was Kareem's rookie year, '69-'70, uh he was still Lew Alcindor at the time. And he had this grace and elegance at the sky hook, and you know came in. And I, I idolized him. I mean, as a kid, being a ball boy, watching him play up close. And I ended up like if it played against him for 8 years at the end of his career and it was a, you know to me it was a huge deal so getting into this this thing with him was uh you know like really twilight zoney uh I've you know I never really talked to him one way or the other before or since uh you know just a few hello how are yous but uh you know we've never uh you know had a sit down or what happened or you know whatever so um uh, you know, he, as you know, throughout his career, he's always been a to himself. You know, not really a gregarious out there guy. Um, and um, uh, so, you know, so like I said, Magic and I, when I was when I was certainly you know, playing with a team, we had a had a laugh about. It. That's when he told me the whole I elbowed him in the head story. I didn't even know until then. Mm. So uh, you know, so we went through all that, and uh, you know, you know, we we cleared, we had a clearing, but uh, Kareem no.
2: When you, were with, when you were with Denver during that stretch, so for people that don't, d- don't remember or even too young to even have a chance to remember it, early 80s, you guys are scoring 123 points a game your first two seasons there under Doug Moe. Right. I'm, I'm curious, like, what are practices like? What's, like, what's the philosophy there? What, what was going on with, with Doug Moe on, on the day-to-day in terms of instilling that?
1: Well, that kind of brings us back to that full circle ABA conversation, right? So, for those of you who are historians of the league, the ABA was the alternative league. It was only in the in you know in existence for what I don't know six or seven years in the 70s, and then they merged. And the biggest reason for the merger was Dr. J. Dr. J. signed with the ABA with uh, with uh, new, with the uh, New York Nets, and he was such a big star that the that the NBA actually bought the league to get him or merge with the league. Quick side story. In one of the great blunders in sports marketing history, the first commissioner of the ABA was George Mikan. of course, the star player for Minneapolis. Uh, and as you know, they had their signature was the red, white, and blue ball because they were the American Basketball Association. Well, George Mikan never trademarked the red, white, and blue ball. As a result, millions and millions were sold and used, but they never got a penny from the licensing. They, people who believed that if... If he had trademarked the ball and with the money from the sales, they would have actually been in a better financial shape to buy the NBA, not the other way around. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that one marketing blunder cost the the NBA becoming the ABA, but not vice versa. But back then, the ABA was more like minor league baseball, right, where they had to get attention. So they did the ABA ball. They played a, a street ball kind of up and down high scoring style. Everything you like about the NBA, the dunk and dunk contest, the three-point line, and the high tempo, all vestiges of the ABA. And so when the merger happened in 76, Denver was one of the four teams to, to come in from the ABA. Uh, San Antonio, of course, Indiana, and uh, the Nets were the other three. So there was still this big ABA mentality. Doug Moe is an ABA player and coach, along with guys like Larry Brown, George Carl, uh, you know, that group of guys. And so we still played the ABA style, high tempo, pressure offense, pressure defense practices were warm up and scrimmage for an hour without stopping. And that was it. We had no plays. We had no sets. Uh, we had a scheme. It was full, full speed passing game all the time. Uh, pass cut, move the ball, move the people. Uh, we had, you know, great scores, great shooters, Alex English. I think at one time, one of those years, we had three of the top five scores in the league, uh, uh, you know, like you'll see stats when when these two guys score 60 points in a game, the team is you know 14 and 12 or whatever. Well, our stat was when Kiki Vandeweghe, Dan Issel, and Alex English score 90 in a game between them, <laughs> 90, the three of them, uh, and it was like more than half the games. You know, it was you know that was the style. You know, the great part was when you're playing, you're scoring 130, 140, everyone touches it, everyone's involved. You got you know seven, eight guys in double figures. And, uh, you know, so there's no worry about, you know, hogging the ball or taking a lot of shots because you're going to get it. And it was, a, you know, a, I learned more about basketball playing passing game than I ever did learning playing sets because everything was reads. You had to look two steps ahead where were guys, you know, you're you're timing, your cuts, your, you know, everything off the ball, weak side screens, weak side cuts. And I learned, like I said, I learned more about how to play basketball from playing a freelance, which is way harder than running plays. As far as understanding the game, I uh, learned more about that by playing, you know, in these 125-point games. I mean, and the Jazz also played a high tempo. I remember one game we played; it was 50-41 at the end of the first quarter.
0: Nice.
1: And uh, if you remember the highest-scoring game in NBA history, another game that you know on the losing end of a great historical game, we're playing Detroit at home, and this was. Uh, uh, Kelly Chapuca, Isaiah Thomas. Uh, you know that for you know, early years, 80, is maybe 83. I want to say. Uh, I think we had five guys over 40 in that game. Uh, it was 135 all at the end of regulation. Played three overtimes and ended up at 186-184. Right. So so do the math. 15 minutes, a quarter, and three minutes. Yeah, you know, so the game
0: certainly didn't slow down in overtime. Right, you each score fourteen in the first overtime, twelve in the second overtime, and then fifteen, thirteen in the third overtime.
1: Yeah, so I mean, it was uh, you know these are five minute overtimes. So I mean, it was it played high tempo. You know, nobody slowed the game down because it was overtime. I mean, it was you know full speed the whole way. So uh, you know, and it was, and, and believe it or not, the game was decided on free throws at the end. Um, you know, both teams were just, and, and there nobody ever had a lead. I mean, it was a five-point, you know, or less game from zero to 186. I mean, it was an incredible game, and um, uh, but that was the style of play. It was you know, move the ball, move the people, hot potato, you know, whatever you want to call it. Great passing game. If if you if you ever watched the game, uh, they used to play it a lot when NBA Classic was on or whatever that station was, and you go, wow, these. I mean, we could play. Right, guys were defending but the offenses were great. Guys could shoot. Everybody could shoot it. The ball moved. Ball never touched the floor. Uh, I mean, it was really good basketball.
0: So a few things stand out in that box score. So Isaiah with the 47 and 17. Great. John Long had 41. On your side, Kiki and Alex English both played 50 minutes. Kiki had 51, 9, and 8. English had 47, 12, and 7. You played 24 minutes and took one shot in the highest-scoring game in NBA history, yet you went 11-for-12 from the line. Well, one so again, I shot? took more than
1: one shot because I got fouled a lot. Um, so, here's, so here's a funny stat for you. I found an old clip, and you know, my son is a senior in high school, so, and he's a, he's a ball player. Uh, so every once in a while, I'll dig out you know, something and dust it off and, and show him that Dad really could play. So we're playing Seattle in the playoffs one year, and, and Bernie Berker's staff is complaining how I get to the line so much. And the, somebody dug up the stat that I was second in league history for the percentage of my points scored from the foul line. Huh. And so I scored a lot of points. You know, I got fouled a lot, right? So I went yeah, you know, I was drawing fouls, I was, you know, going to the body, going to the rim. And the number one all time was Dolph Shays. So Dolph and I were one wow. and two in league history at the time of getting the highest percentage of our points from the line. So we were both really good at drawing fouls. Now, Carl Malone is now in that mix. Moses is in that mix. Um, so I don't know if we're, not, if we're still one or two, but I thought that was pretty, yeah, that was pretty comical that, uh, that both of us had that same kind of aspect to our play.
0: So then, so then let's, let's stay with your dad. I, I, I remember you mentioning once about a summer camp with your
1: dad that he ran with Bob Cousy. Am I correct? Sort of. Um, Bob Cousy and my dad started the first and second basketball camps in America in the early 50s. Bob, uh, you know, Bob started early in the summer. My dad did his later in the summer, and uh, so they actually were responsible for the industry of basketball camps, of specialty camps, or at least from the basketball side. Remember, the NBA only started in 46, right? Actually, officially in 49, but they count the precursor, the the BAA, as 46. Um, but it wasn't called the National Basketball Association until '49, and so by '51, you know, they hadn't had an All-Star game yet, and, uh, and and that's when my dad and Bob Cousy both started basketball camps. Uh, so another quick, funny side story. So for my dad's 80th birthday, the NBA sent a highlight reel of you know games, game footage, and a lot of the stuff stuff I hadn't seen before for us to play. We had a big family party of like 100 people. So we, we I'm, so they send us a little DVD, and I watched it before the before the party. And it, uh, one of the highlights was the old Marty Glickman Converse reels. Do you remember those? Uh, they used to play them like before movies and stuff. Uh, Converse no. sponsored like these, like literally it was film, and they would have highlights. of Marty Glickman, the famous announcer, uh, Syracuse guy, uh, and he goes, "Here we are at the Boston Garden for the first All Star game. It's the tipped to Deschase who scores." And we went, "Wait a second." Was that the first basket in All-Star history? Uh, well, run that back. So we ran it back, and it turns out that my dad scored the first basket in All-Star game history, and oh. nobody knew. He didn't even know. Oh. And they sent us the highlight, and we went, wait a minute, there it is. And I ran, he goes, wow, I guess that's the first basket in All-Star history. And it was right before uh, the L.A. game in 2011, which was the 60th anniversary of the first All-Star game. And so the NBA, you know, I called uh, Charlie Rosenswag, the head of uh, NBA Entertainment at the time. Mm-hmm. And I said, Charlie, thanks for that reel. That was incredible. But, you know, and Dolph was thrilled. He didn't know he scored the first basket in All-Star history. And Charlie didn't know either. So they looked, you know, they did the same thing. And they ended up doing this really nice deal during the All-Star game in L.A. And they, history, hey, here we are, the first All-Star basket. And Dolph was in the crowd. And, you know, they he got a nice ovation. It was very That's cool. Nice. But it was like totally by accident that that we figured out. Nobody even thought to you know to kind of put it together, and they sent us that highlight reel. So, super trivia: it turns out the first basket in NBA history and the first basket in All Star history, both scored by Jewish players.
0: How about that. When when's
1: going to be the next one?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so there you go. So a little uh, little basketball trivia, because of course. Uh, as you know, back in the twenties, thirties, forties, you know, basketball was heavily Jewish. Right. As you know, there were so many Jewish immigrants. You know, the Jewish Jews were in the ghettos. It was upward mobility, and uh, yeah, so it's be you know, pretty interesting how how times have changed.
2: Danny, you have this generation now in which the you know we talk to to millennials today. If you know, it's always oh man basketball in the eighties and nineties, how physical they were. I mean, you just referenced it earlier in the podcast, old school, you're an old school guy. What, what types of things did your dad say to you about how the game was different and you didn't appreciate it when you were young?
1: So my dad's era, uh, they didn't have five positions. They had three, they had guard forward center. They didn't distinguish between a point guard and a two guard. They didn't have a small forward and a big forward. What they had – so for my dad's era, they had an offensive forward and a defensive forward, and so they would, would cross-match. So my dad, as the offensive forward, would get matched against a basically an enforcer. Um, and uh, then on the flip side, uh, you know, he would guard the weaker forward, the scoring forward, and then he would have a defensive player who would match up against you know, the star forward for the other team. And uh, so in his era, if you were too hot – They'd start a fistfight, uh, or they would, you know, throw elbows, or you know, try and get you into a fight. Uh, if you dunked, for instance, that was considered showboating, and they thought nothing of undercutting you, throwing you on the ground <laughs> for showing off. Uh, you'd, fighting wasn't a ejectable offense back then. I mean, sometimes you wouldn't get thrown out for fighting. As a matter of fact, my dad was an Ironman. He had, at the time, he had the longest streak, 580 something, I think, was the number. Uh, before Johnny Kerr broke it, and his streak ended when he got submarined and broke his wrist. Ooh. And uh, missed a game, came back, and then played with his right hand in a cast with tape over it. And he said, I love that he used it as a club. He'd beat the hell out of people. <laughs> then he broke his other hand and played with both hands in casts. What? Played and still scored 18 a game. Uh, wait, and, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Both of his hands were in casts? Yeah, he had both broken wrists and still played and still scored 18 a game. Team They didn't have team trainers. The road, the, the home team would, would be the trainer for both sides. Uh, guys played in Chuck Taylors. There were no orthotics. There was no, you know, uh, training. There was no, uh, you know, physical therapy. You know, you ate steak. If you ate pasta before a game, you get fined. And it was, um, you know, it was meat and potatoes. Uh, you know, the league only went as far west as Minneapolis. Because they didn't have air travel, you know, it wasn't common yet. So they took the train to road games. And so they might play a game at home in Syracuse and then take the train to Minneapolis and, and you know, hopscotch back and end up in Boston, you know, taking the train uh, with sleeper cars. And uh, so it was, you know, that was his era. Then in my era, uh, you know, it was at least we flew, you know, flew in airplanes. I used to joke that, you know, I'm, I'm old, but I, at least I was in color. Uh, so <laughs> not that old. And then, you know, my era went from flying commercial to then, you know, private planes or, you know, team planes came in towards the end. So, again, you know, when I was older, I used to joke with them, hey, I'm so old we used to have to go to the airport to get a plane. You know, now you just <laughs> go to the hangar and the guy takes your bag, you know, with the young guys. But, I, you know, at the end of my career, I was older than a lot of my teammates' parents because, you know, they came in at 18, 19, uh, you know, Parents had, you know, so sometimes the mom was 35, 36, I'm 40. And uh, so now they talk about, well, we don't want back-to-back games. Uh, You know, in my era, we played, you know, they're still playing three in a row when I came in. Used to play, you know, home, road, home, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Or you might have like a road game on a Thursday, then home games Friday, Saturday, you know, like three nights in a row. Uh, they had a thing called the Texas Death March where you played Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio three straight nights. But uh, it was tough to win. I mean, nobody won all three games. And uh, we had a lot of guys, because imagine you had to take the first flight in the morning, right? So you, when's the first flight? 545? So when do you have to leave the hotel to get to a 545 flight? 330? 4? Well, a lot of guys wouldn't even go back to the hotel. They'd throw their bag on the bus after the game, go out, and just take a cab to the you know, to the bus at 3:30 in the morning. I mean, why go back and sleep for an hour? And and uh, we used to have 20 to 24 back-to-backs in a season.
2: No oh, load management when you got yeah.
1: What was low, What was that? And uh, remember when I came in, there were two refs, not three. Uh, you could hand check. Right, so guard crossed half court, and he had a, he had Alvin Robertson, six six, you know, strong as an ox, with his hand on your hip, push, pushing you all over the place. Uh, you you were, there was no uh, you could root guys out of the post. So a guy would post up, you'd, you you know, put your knee in his butt, and just walk him you know to the foul line. You know that that was legal. Uh, there were no flagrant fouls. That wasn't a rule back then. Uh, so it was a re- very very different game. And actually, one of the reasons the pace was so high is so you wouldn't get grabbed if you played a push and shove game, you know, you just guys held you the whole game. You just couldn't do it. So that's why, you know, I think, you know, we averaged 120, but everybody was over 105, 106 a game. And, uh, you know, cause again, you couldn't play slow down because guys just held you too much.
2: Your dad is, is not just one of the 50 greatest of all time, but arguably the greatest of his era. And I'm, I'm so curious about this because we had Gerald Henderson on the podcast a while uh-huh. back and, talking about how difficult it was growing up with his dad as an NBA player, and his dad was a good NBA player. Your dad is one of the greatest who ever played. So what was the hardest part of growing up and having your dad as one of the greatest players of all time?
1: All right, so I'll give you a little perspective. So when I was growing up, or when when my dad was playing, he was at one time the NBA's all-time leading scorer. Only five players in history has that distinction. That's a good trivia question, by the way. Mm-hmm. He was the NBA's all-time leading scorer, all-time leading rebounder, all-time leading in number of All-Star games, in games played, seasons played, held virtually every all-time record, led the league in rebounding, free throw percentage, field goal percentage. I mean, there wasn't a record that he didn't own at one time or another. And, uh, and also, Syracuse was you know, won a championship, which is one of the few small cities uh, you know to win a championship in a major league sport. Obviously, there's Green Bay and a few like that, but uh, but there aren't that many, so it's a huge uh, point, you know, point of pride, especially you know, growing up in the 60s and 70s when it was pretty fresh. You know, people remembered the Nats and the arena, the War Memorial was still being used every day. So, uh, so that was the, you know, that was a tough part. Every time my name was in the paper. So the first time I ever got my name in the paper locally, it said, Danny Shays, son of NBA Hall of Famer Doll Shays, who led the league in this, who scored this, was in the, the Hall of Fame in this, played well. So it was my name. <laughs> <laughs> Played well with two paragraphs of my dad's stats in between. And that was the first <laughs> time I got my name in the paper. And, uh, and even in the NBA, uh, every time my name was in the paper, it was about him. Uh, which, again, total huge point of pride. The good news for me growing up is ESPN wasn't around yet. We, there was not an NBA team in Syracuse, so I didn't have that everyday pressure. And I had an older brother, so he got the brunt of the son-of-doll stuff. Uh, but still, it followed me. You know, then you'd have the knucklehead, of, you know, who'd write, "Oh, he looks like his father and plays like his mother." You know, you always get those once in a while thrown in there, and just just to keep me humble.
0: <laughs> could your mom play?
1: Uh, no, but she could really rebound in traffic. I'll tell you what. Oh. I mean, she. Was, uh, no, but uh, okay. So last funny story, you'll you'll uh, you'll you'll appreciate this. Kind of circling back to our Larry Bird stories. So I'm with the Jazz, and of course, back then we flew commercial. Right. So when you're the Boston Celtics and you need to page Larry Bird, you don't page Larry Bird. You page some alias. Right. And you don't check into the hotel. as Larry. Give me Larry Bird's room. So a lot of players had aliases. They would check in uh, into the room or and then in the airport. Well, it turns out that Quinn Buckner's alias was (laughs) Shays. So Celtics are playing at the Jazz. Uh, The next morning, we're both flying out. On different flights, of course. Dad's at the game. So he's flying out the next morning. We're at the airport, and all of a sudden he hears, Dolph Shays, please go to to uh, uh, Gate 6. Really? Okay. So he goes to Gate 6. Turns out the Celtics are waiting for Quinn Buckner. So here comes <laughs> Dolph <laughs> <laughs> Then Dolph <laughs> Shea shows up. Uh, and you know, the whole, the whole team just burst out laughing because it was like, duh, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, it was pretty, tough. again, one of the uh, things that, you know, that break up the monotony of, of flying out of Salt Lake city at four 30 in the morning. At what, at what point did your dad
0: lay off the, Hey, you should be doing this. You should be doing this. Here's where you need to improve and just take you for who you are.
1: So we used to play horse in the driveway. Uh, had a hoop in the driveway, and uh, of course in the winter we had to shovel. You know, it was Syracuse after all. Uh, but we had a hoop in the driveway, and we and he'd always want to go out and do drills. And I'm like, Ugh, really? Like really drills? Like you know? Uh, and I'm like, dude, I you know Star Trek's on. I'm not doing drills. <laughs> and uh, I was a big Trekkie, in case you hadn't noticed. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, we but we used to play horse, and my brother who's, who's three years older, and you know so imagine you know he's 14, I'm 11. You know, dad's in his 40s. And we're out there shooting hoops, and, and, you know, he'd go out and, like, literally, it was like that old Larry Bird, um, you know, McDonald's commercial, off the scoreboard, through the power <laughs> lines, uh, off the thing, and swish, right? You, you remember that commercial I was talking about? That's that right. with Yeah. Well, my dad would go literally out in the middle of the street. Okay, I'm two-hand set shot, through the power lines, over the tree, nothing but net. Bam. And I'm like, all right, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and behind the backboard, off the house, good. And it was like we We could never get a letter. And he was not letting us get a letter. I mean, there was no, <laughs> let my little 10-year-old, you know, keep it close. No, I, it was Hammer all the time. And so we did that until I got bigger than him. And, like, we played a little one-on-one, you know, until I got bigger. And then, you know, there was a point where, you know he's getting older. I'm getting in my prime, and then there's this convergence where I all of a sudden I could beat him. Then we were done. That was it.
0: Makes sense. So my Good dad
1: bad. played 1,059 games okay, in the NBA, which was a record in his era. So the morning of my 1,060th game, I call him, as you can imagine. And I go, "Hey, Dad, guess what today is? I'm playing my 1,060th game." And got real quiet. And I actually talked to my mom first, you know, put him on the phone. She's like, I'm not telling him. You're going to have to tell him. I'm not telling him. You know. So, he, so I tell him and he goes, uh, so you beat the old man finally, huh? Like I could see him like grinding his teeth with his lips pursed. Uh, you beat the old man. So, uh, yeah. So when I finally passed him, I, uh, of course I had to call him and he was, he was not happy. But, uh. Uh, but later he was super gracious. He gave me this nice, like this nice little trophy. Uh, and I have, I still have the ball. It's actually in in, uh, in my office that, you know, That's the nice. team painted, you know, Danny Shays playing a thousand and sixtieth game, passing Dolph Shays on the all time list. Oh yeah, I got it. Uh, it's my number one memento for my career.
0: That's great. That's great. Um, before you're talking about commercial flights and then going into charter flights, who uh-huh. is, who, who is the teammate that you just did not want to sit next to on a commercial flight?
1: Well, in the early days, you got seats by seniority, right? So my second year, we draft this guy, Mark Eaton, who, as you know, is 7'4", 300. Uh, Well, we're flying out of Utah, and the team was really on a budget, shoestring. So they used to book the smallest planes they could, so they would only have two rows of first-class seats. Right. Uh, you know, we'd be flying to L.A., there'd be a D.C. 10 in this gate going to L.A. 10 minutes later, and then there'd be a 707, you know, with you know, with eight first-class seats. So Mark and I used to have to sit and coach because uh, we were the two youngest guys. And uh, so you have Ricky Green, you know, six foot. His feet didn't even touch the ground. He's sitting up there. Uh, you know, Frank Layden, you used to steal a seat as the head coach, which was not kosher, but, you know, he's the head coach. If you want to play, you're not going to say anything. So now, now we're down to seven. And uh, yeah, so Mark and I would be sitting there shoulder to shoulder in the exit row, uh, for some. Oh. And you know, everything was a long flight from Utah. You know, Seattle is three hours, and you know, wherever you're going, Texas too. Yeah, then you have to connect through Dallas. You couldn't go to San Antonio nonstop from Salt Lake. And uh, couldn't? Where else couldn't you go? Not like you couldn't go to Portland. You had to go to Seattle and connect down to Portland. Uh, that was always fun. And guys, and, guys yeah, the Mark and guys guys I room together.
0: Dogs in the morning on the plane.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. Mark and I used to share a Marriott double-double. So just imagine Mark and I, you know, 14 plus feet of human and two full-size beds in a, in a Marriott room. And then, yeah, and you'd be on a plane at five in the morning. So one time we're leaving, we're leaving the San Diego and we stayed in these little bag motels because the team was really on a budget. And, you know, it's whatever, 10 to five in the morning, we're leaving the hotel and there is nothing to eat. And I, the best I can do is a bag of malted milk balls out of the vending machine. That was oh. breakfast. And you know I'm half asleep, and we're in the we're in the the hotel van, going to the airport, and I cannot get the bag to open. You know it was like that that mylar bag, and I'm pulling. I just cannot get the damn thing to open. I'm I'm dead tired. So finally I give it all, and the thing just explodes, and malted milk balls go flying all over. Uh-huh. I catch three of them in my lap. and That was breakfast. I had three malted milk balls. And then for the entire drive to the airport, I had to listen to all my malted milk balls roll around on the floor <laughs> of the van, just to torment me. You know, it was diabolical. And you know, the floor of the van once it, there was no five-second rule; it was an instantaneous Ebola rule. It was, I mean, that thing was so nasty. There was no blowing up. You know, I'm dusting this thing off. No, right. I, there was no, there was no saving it. And I, like I said, I would listen to 30 malted milk balls roll around the whole oh. drive to the airport. It was. It was gruesome. Oh, the what, what the stories I could tell you, the the hardships we faced <laughs> back in the day. Well, what was your?
0: I want I want to hear some a Frank Layden story. But what was your first charter flight? Do you remember
1: it? Uh, actually, yeah. Let me see here. Well, Lakers, um, it, it got good quick. Okay, so I uh, got traded. So it was Denver, Utah, no chance. Denver, no chance. Got traded to Milwaukee with the Bucks. Uh, and it was decent because back then there was an airline called Midwest Express. And Midwest Express, was famous. they hubbed in Milwaukee, and it was like JetBlue where all the seats were first-class seats. So it was, that was at least nice flying. And they made, they made homemade chocolates chip cookies on the plane. So that was a nice hybrid. Then we got to L.A. with the Lakers, and they were one of the first teams that chartered. Uh, so everything was to a charter there. Then Phoenix, uh, where I got, went to next, uh, they had a deal with, uh, with the airline was America West. Remember, they I were see. America West Arena, and so they chartered all America West flights. So we had the plane to ourselves, but it was all coach seats, you know, because it was America West flights, which was a, the budget airline. So you got the whole row, but it was all coach. So, and that, so that was kind of a bridge. Then, we get to, or then I go with the Magic, and the owner was the DeVos family, which was Amway, and they had their own private airline. So that was the first one where you had the custom 727 with all the big captain's chairs Mm -hmm. and the catering and the private, you know, the private terminal. And so, yeah, that was uh, so that was the last three years. That that was like my my one sniff of the big time was uh, was with Orlando. That'll work. All right. Frank Layden. give, give, Give me something that
0: he'd do or say that just would not fly now.
1: Uh, are we PG or are we, are we, yeah, you can say whatever oh, you want. We'll full, we'll full bore. Okay. So, um, my, my rookie year, one of our veterans is a guy named Bill Robinson and I love bill to death. Um, uh, he came from Kansas city, big power forward, very elegant, very mature guy. And Frank was new. You know, he was the GM. He took over as the coach uh, when they fired Tom, Nasalki, who was my first coach. And we went on this losing streak. And Bill was kind of stuck in between, uh, you know, like the changing of the guard, right, where he was the outside guy looking in. But, you know, still a – like he he should have been a starter, uh, should have played a lot of minutes, but we were transitioning. So he wasn't playing as much. And, and uh, you know, and Frank was, was way better at telling jokes than coaching the team. So we had Phil Johnson as the assistant who actually, like, did the stuff, and Frank kind of just paced up and down the sidelines and told jokes all the time, and he kibitzed with the fans, and he talked to the scorer's guy, and he you know schmoozed the refs, and but he never really coached much. Uh, as a matter of fact, my i fr- will segue back to this one in a second. So my first real experience with Frank, I was the backup center it was my rookie year, and we're playing against San Antonio, Artis Gilmore, big, power, you know, obviously big monster. So our starting center, Jeff Wilkins, gets two fouls early. I get ready to go in. He puts in Ben Poquette, who is a 6'9", power forward, but, you know, slight. And I'm like, oh, okay. So puts in Ben. Ben gets two quick fouls. So he puts in James Hardy, who's like a 6'7", forward. Um, And James gets two quick fouls. By then, it's like the near halftime, so he puts Jeff Wilkins back in. And I'm like, okay, what did I do wrong that I totally didn't, like, got – Okay, Ben Poquette, I could kind of see it. He was a, you know, one of our star players, but James Hardy was not. Like, how these guys get in at me? So, I do the mature thing. I call, you know, the next day after practice, Coach, can I talk to you? I want you know, have the coaches meeting. So I ask him about it, and he goes, uh, "What happened? Tell me, you know, tell me the sequence." I go, "Well, Jeff got two quick fouls. You put in Ben Poket. He goes, "I did." Uh, yeah, and then he got two quick fouls. I put in James Hardy. He goes, "I did." Frank, thanks for having me. Great talking to you. He had no idea that he completely (laughs) forgot that I was on the team. And there was a lot of that, you know, um, you know, like just stuff. So one time, you know, he starts getting on Bill Robinson about playing defense, and Bill, you know, like I said, I loved him as a player. He busted his ass, taught me a lot as a young player coming up, being professional, and you know, played hard all the time, and you know, real winning attitude. And it burned him up that we weren't winning games. And he and Frank, but he wasn't taking it. And Frank was chewing on him for something, and Bill was going right back at him. And Frank goes, "Yeah, you know why you couldn't guard my asshole." And I'm like, "Oh, uh, that was is that something you say to a player? You know, when you're 400 pounds yourself, and it, and then it, and that and then it got worse, and then it like went downhill from there, if you can imagine. Like it was just you know screaming and cussing and." effewing and why would i want to guard get near your asshole uh, you're like on and, on and on it was like uh so that was my first like deer in the headlights moment as a pro like dude i like totally don't know how to act in this scenario right now like um, What do i say something do i sit here like a schmuck me. what do i do i was like go i didn't i was i didn't know what to do so that was, so you had, and then, and then Frank would crack you up all the Like he was just like super funny, told great jokes, was a, you know, would have been a great like Catskill comedian. Uh, and, you know, I love him to death. Uh, still friends to this day, but not my, you know, you know, I can't say I remember a lot of his coaching philosophy.
2: Oh, either can he, I guess.
1: So, yeah, that was, like I said, that was, that was my first, oh my God, what do I do moment?
2: Oh. Uh these these stories have been unbelievable. appreciate all of it. Uh Danny, before we uh close out, we just want to get you on some quick hitters so unrelated topics. We're just going to throw your way. You're talking coaching. Young Jim Bayheim as a coach.
1: What was the yeah, best Yeah, there a second year. Um and uh ironically, I knew Jim way before that because he was a counselor at my dad's camp when he was 19. So I knew Jim, since he was, you know, at Syracuse in college in like 64. And, yeah, I was like 64, 65. You know, I was five years old, and, uh, you know, I knew him back then. Uh, So as a young coach, you know, he was, you know, still quiet, finding his way. Uh, We had Louie and Bowie, Roosevelt, Bowie. You know, we're good – again, guy, I'm really good friends to this day. Star Center, uh, you know, had so much to do with me growing as a player because I got to, you know, play against him every day. Uh, But, like I said, Jim was – you know, pretty quiet back then. Family, friend, you know, again, you know, back in the day. Um, uh, we really I should have gone Twin Towers. That was a thing that was kind of getting big back then when Kentucky did it with Rick Roby and, and Mike Phillips. And we had the ability to go Twin Towers and real big. He, he tried it. He didn't stick with it. So I'm a little still a little mad at him for that. But, um, uh, but yeah, like I said, I was there year two. And uh, what's it been now, 44, 45?
2: Think about that. It could have been the 3-2 zone noah rather than the two three that he'd be famous for all this time that's incredible. exactly what it worked what was a, a moment that
0: defines the post shack orlando magic uh
1: okay so we're uh playing at miami uh, in the playoffs alonzo morning tim hardaway ronnie cycling uh we get sheldon games one and two ronnie cycling breaks his foot um and uh we went inside out. So I came in, I'm am the old now the oldest starting player in the league, 38. Uh so now I'm playing high post and Penny and Nick Anderson are now our post players. And Penny averages 40 the rest of the series. We turns the whole thing around. And we end up losing game 5. It was a five game series at the buzzer Dick Bavetta screwed us. I'm still mad at him. Uh called a horrible foul and uh so so the post Shack era was uh, you know, really you know, guard-focused. You know, guard so we went from inside-out to, like I said, really being one of the top teams at posting up our guards. Uh, in the marketing world, you'll appreciate this. Shaq left within a week of the gift shop filling up completely with Shaq merchandise. Like literally everything showed up. They loaded every store in town with every Shaq jersey imaginable. And then a week later, he leaves for L.A. So the joke was, for the next two years, every homeless guy in Orlando was loaded up with Shaq gear <laughs> and uh, was wearing you know, Shaq jerseys and Shaq t-shirts.
0: You, you, wait, did you and Dick Bavetta ever
1: discuss this? Uh, Dick was like the kiss of death. Oh, no, every game every – game, and I love Dick Bevetta, uh, and he's like considered one of the best refs in the league at the time. Every game he plays, he'll, he screws me up and down. Um, and uh, drives me nuts. He just calls these shit fouls, and I end up, you know, you know being in foul trouble for ticky-tacks. And uh, I don't know. I, I guess he's, you know, they love him because he's a homer.
2: Alvin Robertson, famous all-time steals record, all that stuff as a defender. Eric Murdoch, you also played with, was the NCAA's all-time steals record holder for a while. Which one was better at, at stealing the basketball, Eric Murdoch uh, or Alvin Robertson?
1: Alvin Robertson got voted best guy to have on your side in a bar fight and um, in the league, you know, when they had the, you know, when the players used to do their thing. So Alvin, so that was Alvin Robertson and Alvin was a, I mean, he was just ruthless uh, in that way. And he had big giant hands and long arms. And when he would ha- when he, you know, that was the hand check era. And he put your, put a hand check on your hip and just like stop you from moving uh Alvin was one of the great teammates uh you know played hard every game uh and like I said was 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 just uh and you know you couldn't wear him out I mean he was he was uh you know awesome and I love Eric Murdoch also you know Eric's you know great guy but Alvin Alvin hands down it was the toughest defender um you know that I ever played with uh, number 2 would be TR Dunn from those Denver Nugget teams so uh uh, so uh, quick, Alvin Robertson story. We're playing at New Jersey when Drazen Petrovic was in his prime, and uh, he was you know lighting everybody up. And, and so Frank Borkowski bet Alvin fifty bucks that he couldn't hold Drazen under ten points. And Alvin's like, bet. They're doing it. And so we're playing, and Alvin's just dinging him up. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't leave a side. He used great. You know, nobody was setting the screen on Alvin. Just would chuck a screen, knock the guy over. He was playing draws, and, and uh, so one play, guy drives, Alvin goes to help, kick out to draws and for the three, and he's running back going, that doesn't count! I had to help! That three doesn't count! You know, because he wanted the 50 bucks. So bad. And uh, so, pretty funny. Did he get it? Uh, actually, he held draws and under, but I think he had still ended up with like 12 or 13. So, didn't get the 50, but, uh, but but did a great job. Do you have a all-time teammate team? not really, but I have, you know, I only have a few bad teammates, believe it or not. Um, I, don't, Boy, I, that, I don't think I'm going to name names. I'll have to put two You and I will talk just, off offline, and then we'll just, see if we yeah. want to do that. But, uh, just, you know, 18 years, I only had a couple of teams where I just go, these just aren't good guys, you know. Uh, most of the time, we, you know, I'll tell you what, my first year with the Jazz, we were 25 and 57, and we fought till the end, we ended up, you know, guys becoming great friends, guys I'm still friends with to this day. Um and you know, great you know, like I said, guys I think great teammates. Uh Denver, you know, guys we had great teammates. And uh, you know, most of the guys I played with uh you know always you know really hit it off. I was kind of like the the you know the honorary brother through most of the teams I played on. Uh uh you know back then it was uh um you know we spent you know, again, because we traveled commercial, because we you know hung out more. You know, I think it was more there was less to do. You know, we, we weren't like guys making commercials and doing social media stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the teams maybe spent more time together. I mean, this I'm not basing that on anything but guessing. Um, you know, because we had more road nights. You know, we had more out of town trips. We had more. You know, because again, we didn't fly after games much. Well, speaking of flying after games, since you asked. The only place we could ever fly was Salt Lake to Denver. They had, like, a 1030 flight. And, uh, you know, so if it was the end of a road trip or, was, or it was a, you know, one-day trip. we One time our trainer uh, tried to make the flight. So we bought, you know, he booked us on the 1030. And it was, like, you know, 730 game ends at, you know, whatever, 915. Oh, no, I think it was a 7 o'clock game. So we could get out, like, by 9. And he goes, he tells us on the way over, game's over, in and out of the shower, we're going because we've got to make this flight. So, come, as you can imagine, it comes down to a two-point game. We got possession. And he's like, Doug, you got to call a three. We got a flight at 1030. You can't go in overtime. So, now we got the trainer calling the plays because we had to make the, the 1030 flight. <laughs> so, what happened? Uh, we lost. But we made the flight.
2: <laughs> that just never happened. Like that,
0: that idea is so foreign to, to me and, and to anybody.
1: So, yeah, he's like, Doug, you got to go for a three. We, 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 we can't miss the flight. Um, can't, can't go to overtime. Before I ask you out of the hotel already. You know what we can do.
0: Right, you can't go back. Before we ask you our rejecting-the-screen question, you celebrated my first birthday on December twenty second, 1982, with your only triple-double, a 13-12-11 performance against the Lakers. Do you have any mementos from that night?
1: Uh, actually, I remember that. Uh, the triple-double. And the reason I remember it is because I think the next game I was one or two assists shy from back-to-back triple-doubles. Oh. And, uh, I had, yeah, I got to check there to be sure. But I, I remember it was like I was this close to back-to-back triple-doubles. And, uh, but, uh, you know, and, and again, it was, I don't know if, the, if people even noticed back then, you know, those kind of things. But, um, and actually later that year, uh, because of that, Dan will tried to get a triple-double. Because, you know, he had to do everything better than me. And, um, well, it turns out that he had a stinker of a night. And he ended up with, like, 6.4 rebounds and uh, 10 assists. And I go, congratulations. Man. Or, oh, no, I think he just missed it. He had like, go, you got a triple single. Good job, you know. And uh, so, yeah, he was, he was trying so hard for it. He, like, couldn't concentrate on the shots. and No, actually, I think he did get 10 assists. I think he got the single bubble.
0: What are you, what are you spending your time with now?
1: Uh, actually i 'm a partner in a startup, uh insurance technology it 's actually pretty exciting stuff we're doing uh doing a lot of uh, a lot of uh, artificial intelligence automation of legacy business systems so we 're taking things that are very paper driven and converting them to automation uh in things like insurance and home building and uh, and uh you know some of these other areas and uh, i 'm actually having a lot of fun with it because I get to learn new technology i 've always done a lot of entrepreneurship and business development and uh so we're working on some some pretty major stuff it's a lot of fun yes. and i got a high school senior who's who's uh you know he's really coming into his own unfortunately it's kind of a bad time to do it with covid and all the colleges being shut down and nobody doing any scouting but um but working on that and i'm uh, actually back in the media so you and i are going to have to talk some more about that i'm uh doing a daily talk show for syracuse for the espn and syracuse and uh, we're ready to start up again now that basketball got the thumbs up. Uh, and I do pre, uh, do uh, pregame shows for the Orange, and uh, so so got my hands in a, in a bunch of different things.
0: Good, good. So so we we can't break the wherever Logan's going to college news on here and not yet. He's going to be a, a one a one and done somewhere. What what's the story?
1: Well, uh, I don't know if he'll be a one. I'm hoping he's not a one and done because that means he's done. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, But so so to bring that full circle, since you mentioned it, so my dad skipped two grades in high school and graduated DeWitt Clinton in the Bronx at 16, went to NYU and got an engineering degree in three years, and so graduated college at 19. So he actually entered the NBA at the age of a one and done, but had already had an engineering degree from NYU. Crazy.
2: No pressure. No pressure for his son.
1: Exactly. So, uh, well, and for him, okay, so his mom's an Olympian, springboard diver. I'm an NBA guy. His dad's a grandpa, NBA Hall of Famer. His cousins are, he's got two PhD economists. He's got a ballerina, veterinarian, tech executive. I mean, it's hard for him to find a spot. And uh, so he actually is, believe it or not, is also an All-American baseball player. Uh, six seven plays first third in pitches. Uh, and you know, being that in Phoenix, you know, grew up playing 12 month baseball, really good. And, uh, but right now he's basketball jonesing. So he's really committed to being a, uh, you know, see how good a basketball player he can become. But late bloomer, you know, he started late cause he played baseball mostly growing up cause I didn't want to push him into basketball. I wanted him to discover it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so when he, uh, when I told you about my dad's 80th birthday, uh, he was six and they showed the video and he like goes, that's my dad. That's my grandpa. You know, like he didn't mm-hmm. even know. So, so he was able to discover it and find that he loves it on his own. Uh, you know, it's still always dicey as he playing because he has to or because he wants to. Uh, so we're in that conversation, but um, uh, but it's uh, it's fun. So he's uh, like I said, he's got this year where you know battling, you know, like I said, all the COVID stuff with the you know the summer schedule being shut down to get scouted. So now it's it's kind of backwards where you almost scout the colleges, right? You send your stuff out to them. Right you know, to get looked at. So it's, uh, it's a little different animal, but, uh, but we're dealing with it. He's in good hands.
0: All right. Our final question always is the rejecting the screen question. So it's the conversation that everybody used to have in the back of the bus. I'm sure you guys had it on planes. Who would be the guy that you would choose to reject the screen, go ISO, get your team a bucket can't be Jordan. So pick from any teammate that you had in the league.
1: Uh, for me, that would probably be Barkley. Um, and uh, he used to use the double-edged sword because, again, he'd be the guy who you'd always call the play for. There was no doubt uh, who was getting it. But then he always used to bitch all the time because if, when anyone else tried to go one-on-one and they got in trouble, they'd always throw it to him with two seconds on the shot clock, and he'd have to jack up some crazy three-pointer just to get a shot up, and he'd always complain that it was killing his three-point percentage. Um, but, no, definitely Barkley was the, uh, was the go-to guy at the end, and um, – uh, you know, so he was, uh, you know, he was, he
0: was that guy. Danny, I always enjoy talking to you, Adam and I really, really do appreciate it. And we will speak soon, continue to stay
2: safe and healthy.
1: Hi, man. Always a pleasure, Adam. Thanks for having me.
2: Oh, this was the best. Thanks, Danny.
1: You bet. It really is. He
0: mentioned it, the six degrees of Danny. Shea. I mean, he is, he's connected to
2: everybody in league history, everybody in league history it's remarkable it's remarkable he people don't realize he I don't know if it still holds but at one point of all the Syracuse guys had played the most games of any and most NBA games of any Syracuse player uh and you think about their rich tradition and all but the fact that this guy played in so many errors and then as you point out I mean his dad you go through and it's it's unbelievable I mean I knew of Dolph Shays. Obviously, as a, as a basketball historian, but you're diving in, it's like, oh, yeah, incredible rebounder, incredible free throw shooter, incredible scorer, incredible assist guy. Like, there was nothing he couldn't do. And then, of course, as, as Danny mentioned, he was an Iron Man too. And that, that was an era where everybody fought. Like, it's the coolest thing. Like, and for him to be able to just explain all those stories was pretty awesome. Yeah, and in the 81 draft, only Buck Williams and Eddie Johnson played more games
0: than Danny Shays. So we appreciate you all listening to this episode of Rejecting the Screen Going ISO, and you can go back and listen to so many of the previous episodes as well. The Going ISO editions with some of Danny's old teammates like Ala Abdelnabi. Those two were together in Milwaukee. We're on Instagram at Rejecting underscore the underscore Screen. Adams on Twitter at Smith Lives. I'm at Noah Koslov. C O S L O V. Here's what else is on the Locked On Podcast Network. Locked On NBA, five days a week. Locked On Fantasy Hoops, Josh Lloyd, five days a week. Every Monday, Hollinger and Duncan, John Hollinger, and Nate Duncan, their unique take. And then your team every single day on the Locked On Podcast Network. It's a podcast for all 30 teams every single day. And you get the two of us projecting the screen on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So make sure you pound that subscribe button and rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Adam? Thanks, Mel. You are the best stuff.